seated. Good evening to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 12 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and so here we are in Luke chapter 12. Let me try a stopwatch thing here. There we go. And uh, you remember we'll pick things up in verse 35 this evening, and we uh, stopped halfway through um, the chapter, and Jesus was addressing us as disciples uh, concerning the subject of worry. And... Uh, uh, and calling on the ways in which we can become more heavily minded, set our gaze upon uh, things above, and where our treasure is, our heart is also going to be uh, there as well. And, and then he comes to verse 35, and it might just seem like, a, as you're reading through, like this jarring transition where he goes from talking about worry to talking about the rapture of the church, but it's really not as jarring as it might look because the rapture of the church is the ultimate solution to all the worries that we face in life as Christians. I mention it every so often and more often than I might like, but until I hear someone say it better, I'll keep using it. And I doubt anyone will ever say it better, but listening to Tommy Ice one time, and he was teaching down in Calvary Costa Mesa on um, the rapture of the church, and he got into the pulpit, and before he even began anything, he said, what problem in your life as a Christian wouldn't solve, be solved by the rapture? And uh, that's exactly uh, the truth. It will all be solved by the rapture. Again, no longer through a glass darkly, but face to face. And so he moves in, into this realm in his uh, instruction to the disciples. And he says in verse 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. This was the position of a, a servant, of a master in a, in a household. You would have your waist girded, your robe pulled up in such a way that you could move decisively, your lamps burning. Uh, the picture of being ready to work, ready to welcome the master home. And you should be like, uh, yourselves should be like men who wait for their master uh, when he sh uh, will return from the wedding, that when he comes uh, and knocks, that they may open to him immediately. And it's worth circling if you circle things in your Bible, that word wait in verse 36. And so he calls upon us as Christians to be waiting for Jesus' return for the church at the rapture of the church and to be uh, waiting for his uh, arrival with the same kind of expectation and, uh, and, and discipline and all of, a, of a, a servants toward a master. He said, blessed are those servants uh, whom the master, when he comes, and so this when he comes, when he comes, it's not an issue of uh, if uh, he comes, but it's when he comes, uh, that when he comes will find watching. So there's another circle uh, word. We've got wait, we've got watching, so that when he comes, he will uh, find us watching. Verily, verily, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And so uh, it, when Jesus comes back, he wants to find uh, us as his servants waiting for him, uh, watching for his return at the rapture of the church. Jesus then astonishingly speaks here of the fact that uh, he will then take and uh, uh, gird himself 
and uh, have us sit down to eat, and He will serve us. Talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven that happens after uh, the uh, rapture of the church and we're in heaven. So here comes the end of our pilgrimage in this world. Now we come into God's house, so to speak, Jesus' house, heaven. And so as He invites us into the glory, Uh, of heaven in the imagery of the ancient world, you would always wash people's feet and then serve them something to eat. And so here is uh, uh, what uh, we can expect from Jesus at the time uh, of, of the rapture. And if he should come, that is the master speaking of Jesus, in the second watch, that would be nine o'clock at night until Uh, midnight or come in the third watch, midnight to three uh, in uh, the morning, those times when you kind of get a little uh, sleepy, the time uh, time in a day where you would be least likely to be uh, waiting and watching. And so if he should come at the time that we are prone to be least alert, Uh, that he will then find us in this condition of waiting and watching, and blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come to rob his house, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. There's another word worth circling. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not uh, expect. And so imagine you own a house, you own an estate, and somebody says, you're going to be broken in, your house is going to be broken into. Uh, here's the exact time that, uh, or, uh, that, uh, that it's, it's going to occur. And if you knew that your house was going to be broken into, you would be on high alert for that particular event. And so he says, we're to be on the same kind of a high alert for the promise that Jesus has made that he is going to return uh, for the church and take us home uh, to be... Uh, uh, with him uh, in in glory, and so this beautiful promise he keeps talking about. Uh, the, he talks about the kingdom of God all, all the way through this, and and the watching, the waiting, and being ready. So the, the passage uh, speaks pretty obviously to us uh, as Christians tonight. Am is my life one that is marked by waiting for His return? watching for His return, happening at any moment in time, and finding myself uh, actually being ready for, for His return. In the rapture of the church, He promised that uh, He was going to return and take us into the glory of heaven. Jesus did, but prior to the great tribulation period, and we're to be watching and waiting for that. One of the things that waiting for the Lord's return, knowing that it could happen in an instant for the church, one of the effects of that upon the church is it has an influence for holiness. And uh, this hope that he, he who has this hope that within him uh, will be holy even as he that is uh, God is holy. And that realization that he could come at any time, in the, at any moment, any activity that we're engaged in, Uh, and to have that really mark our thinking uh, is, of course, only going to have a purifying and a holy effect within our lives. Now, teaching concern of, concerning prophecy, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, all of these things that when I was a new Christian, even when I was in my youth, these were uh, things that were talked about all of the time. They were just a, a part of the conversation, the knowledge that every Christian had related to these things, and it was a part of the Christian life. And then, and I'd say in the last 
10 to 20 years, these things have fallen a little bit out of favor. There's not as much of an emphasis upon it, and the younger you are, the more that that is true. And some people speculate it's because the younger uh, uh, leaders sometimes within a church, they still want to feel like they're going to make a difference in the world, and they don't want people so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, as if you could be earthly good without being heavenly-minded. But it has fallen into disfavor a little bit, at least into an area of neglect, by and large. But we look at it, we see it is right here in the Bible, which is all we need. We see it is right here in the Bible in red. And every Christian of every age group is to be watching and waiting all the time for his return. And I mean, if you... (laughs) Look at the prophetic picture within the Scriptures, the description of the world uh, in terms of geopolitically, in terms of morally, in terms of spiritually, in terms of economically, in terms of the problems uh, of the world, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and how I never thought I would see the day that fulfillment would be, that the fulfillment of prophecy would be as advanced and developed as as I, as I see it and as we see it today. I thought it would take much longer to happen, but everything is moving so quickly and uh, everything sits in place for the rapture of the church prophetically, uh, sits in place for that to happen at any time. One of the things, too, is, is that um, it, 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 the expectation of the rapture uh, does is it, it keeps us focused upon heaven and the realization that this is not our home. And so, I mean, we're, we're prone to do it. I'm prone to do it. A lot of hand-wringing about the condition of the world and all of these kind of things and how terrible it is and all. But if you take all of the things that you see in the news or you read on your computer websites or whatever it might be uh, that cause you and I so much anguish and so much hand-wringing and, and uh, feeling crazy about what it is that, that is going on, it does all of that until... I I flip that switch and I realize every bit of it, every bit of it is the fulfillment of the prophetic picture for the return of Jesus Christ. And then I realize, no, this is the effect it is to have on me that it produces uh, within my heart a watching and a waiting and and being ready, serving the Lord as we await His uh, return and so uh, hopefully that marks our hearts and uh, and uh, if it doesn't this uh, teaching of Jesus to the disciples so long ago and to us is intended to uh, correct that so that this is a characteristic of our hearts of course um, at the end of the book of Revelation uh, here we are as the bride of Christ and say, oh boy, it takes a lot of work, you know, to, uh, okay, watching, waiting, and ready, and, and waiting for the Lord to come, and so much concentration. Uh, as the bride of Christ, uh, the, as John put it, the Spirit and the bride say, come, even so, uh, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, no bride needs to be exhorted as her wedding day is approaching to keep her attention upon the groom. It's something that is, uh, is there in our hearts in terms of a love relationship, and so it is with Jesus himself. Peter, as he's listening to all of this, he said to Jesus, Lord, do you speak this parable uh, only uh, to us, or are you speaking this uh, to all people? Uh, uh, 
people? Is this intended for just us as disciples or, or, or uh, people in general? And the Lord responded and said, Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master will make ruler over his household and give uh, them their portion and food uh, in due season? And so here he talks about uh, faithful steward. The, all of this is being addressed, Jesus says, toward those who consider themselves to be servants of God. That is uh, disciples. And he said, blessed is that servant whom his master will uh, find so doing when he comes. And you see that word so that's right there. That so doing refers to wait, watching, and ready. Blessed is that servant whom his master, Jesus, uh, when he comes back for the rapture, finds us in that condition when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he uh, has. And so uh, the rapture of the church should find us in that kind of condition, but uh, here comes the warning related to it. But if that servant Someone who claims to be a Christian says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming. Oh, they've been talking about this for 2,000 years and, and uh, rapture, schmapture, or whatever they would say. Uh, that's never going to happen or it's not going to happen in my lifetime. And uh, what we believe about the uh, approach of the Lord's return or Jesus, the rapture of the church, that it could happen any time, you notice here that it immediately has an effect upon our holiness, upon how we conduct ourselves. So here's a person who, who gives no attention to the rapture, claiming to be a Christian, uh, or says it's off in, in the, uh, the, the, out there somewhere. I'm not going to give it any consideration. All right, that's going to affect a person's holiness. So he will begin to beat uh, the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. And so basically to live like the world. He's going to go back into the world, live like the world, and he's got all of this truth in his noggin. He knows all of these things uh, to be true. He doesn't deny that the rapture is going to happen. He just thinks it isn't going to happen anytime soon. And uh, Jesus said that the master of that servant, again uh, representing Jesus, will come in a day when uh, such a Christian is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion uh, with the uh, unbelievers. And so uh, that will be what will come down upon uh, such a, a, a disciple and uh, and uh, you look at that cut in two, and, and uh, the, the consequences, Jesus, I think, as he puts it here, uh, of, of being an unwise servant, he's given to us in parabolic uh, language. And so when he talks about this kind of, uh, of treatment of, of this, this kind of servant, unfaithful servant, that to live this way as a Christian uh, deserves the, to receive the greatest punishment imaginable for the tragedy uh, that it is. And the appointment is portion with unbelievers, be beaten with many stripes, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he will be beaten with many stripes. There's a lot of people that have never been taught about uh, eschatology or end times or the rapture or the great tribulation. Uh, it's, they're completely ignorant related to it. 
uh, as a Christian. Here's someone who's been taught in that. He's aware of that. And, and so he sins against, uh, by not watching, waiting, and, and, and working, he sins against knowledge. He sins against, he has a greater responsibility. But he who did not know, they're untaught related to these things, yet committed such things deserving uh, of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed uh, of him, they will ask uh, the more. And so uh, here, uh, the uh, vital, whatever this is saying, is absolutely saying at the very least that it's vital that the, the rapture of the church does not catch a Christian or find a Christian in a backslidden state, or living a life of hypocrisy, or compromise, or living uh, like uh, the, the, the world, uh, a life of, uh, of that hypocrisy. And then, uh, and because of the judgment that will follow. So somebody might say, well, what's Jesus saying here? I mean, a person can kind of be horrified by it here. This sounds very, very strong, this treatment of him and this, uh, you know, being uh, cut in two and appointed him as portion uh, with the unbelievers. I don't know. Uh, except that if you're saved, be watching, be waiting, and be ready for his return. And everything else is a crapshoot. Blame my mother for it. She's a professional gambler. But, um, uh, but see, we're, so often what we're looking for is, well, I don't want to kind of be, I'm not accusing you of this, but so often we say, well, I don't want to quite live all the way up in there. What's the gray area that I can live in and still have this confidence of not incurring this kind of serious judgment as a result of not watching, waiting, and uh, being ready for his return? And, and it's not like Jesus is teaching this to say, all right, I'm going to give you degrees of this and you take and do. His expectation, again of us as Christians, the bride of Christ, is that this will mark every single one of our lives. And as those who are blood-bought, as those who have been redeemed by that precious blood of Jesus Christ and the light of the sacrifice that He has made for us to be the bride of Christ, to live anywhere below that is not something He's going to say, ah, yes, I have a level two plan uh, for you on this. He just, it, it leaves it right here. Uh, and uh, in essence, there's something wrong with the Christian who is uh, unwilling to be found watching, waiting, and ready at the time that Jesus comes for the rapture of the church. And of course, uh, 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 anybody that isn't saved uh, would want to get saved immediately uh, as well. And then he, he moves on and uh, speaking about the division that what he's about to accomplish upon the cross is going to bring into human history and into our individual lives. Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth. Oh, boy. I kind of like that picture of him with like the lamb over his shoulders. That you can kind of like, like putty Jesus. You can fashion him into any loving little thing that you want. And then you ignore things like this that he has said. I came to send fire on the earth. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and how I could wish it were already 
kindled. He said, but I have a baptism that speaks of the cross to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. And so his baptism is going to be the cross, that fire is going to come out of his baptism, and that fire is the judgment that will come upon the earth and come upon human beings by virtue of the cross. Now the thing about fire is that fire is kind of a neutral thing. Uh, Fire always, what it does is it always reveals uh, the quality of whatever it's being applied to. Uh, Wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, Precious stones or gold or silver. The one thing you put the fire to and it burns it up completely. And you put the fire to something else and it refines it and makes it stronger. And so the cross and the judgment that, our, uh, that the cross speaks of that our sin deserves is going to be launched out as a result of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection out upon the human condition. And for those that uh, reject that, then it's going to mean a judgment upon uh, those lives. And for those that accept it, it will bring a refinement into our lives. He said, do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? And certainly he did come to give us peace with God and then the peace of God. But he's talking about uh, peace in all the ways that everybody thinks uh, he's going to, uh, you know, Jesus has come into the world in his first coming to just bring uh, peace to every relationship in every situation. He said, I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three on the basis of what? Their faith in Jesus Christ or their rejection of Jesus Christ. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And so there'll be this division that's going to happen based upon whether a person is a Christian or is not. And so, I mean, here, uh, if your family is anything like my family, there is this division within our family. And uh, talking about extended family as well. There are people who uh, are Christians and have trusted in Jesus Christ and those that have not. And there is a division. Uh, Sometimes it's a cordial division, but it's a division. Sometimes it is a hostile division. But one of the things that Jesus is telling us here is that our relationship with Jesus Christ is to be supreme over all other relationships. We're never to compromise our relationship with Christ uh, to uh, accommodate uh, another uh, relationship. We're to be nice, we're to be cordial, but we're never to uh, throw Jesus under the bus in order to accommodate others because Jesus has told us the division is going to occur. There's nothing you can do about it. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so when it happens in our lives, and one of the weirdest things, and it's kind of like uh, the proverbial uh, illustration of this, is here is this kid or someone in his young 20s, happened all of the time in the Jesus movement and the drug culture and all, and the kid is just a mess. He's high on every kind of drug and and uh, going out into the desert and waiting for flying saucers and and the parents are just wondering, my kid is doomed. 
And then they walk in the door one day and declare themselves to be Christians. And the parents, you think, would be delighted, but they say, I liked my kid better when he was on drugs. And there's that kind of a division that, uh, that occurs, and the point is to be prepared for it, to realize that this is what Jesus' introduction into human history accomplishes, and it must be so. But you're, as a Christian, you're on the right side of these things. If anyone is to compromise related to that in the relationship, it is to be those that have rejected Christ and not us. And so Jesus then, uh, he also said uh, to the multitudes, he said, whenever you see a, a cloud rising out of the west, so now he moves from speaking just to his disciples to a large crowd of mixed crowd with believers and unbelievers in it. He said, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west in that, you know, in terms of uh, whatever weather forecasting is in the Middle East, um, he said, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see uh, the south wind blow, you say, uh, there's going to be hot weather, and there is. So most of us grew up and uh, with the old saying uh, that... Uh, 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 red sky in the morning is a sailor's warning. And uh, uh, wait a second. Hold on. Nobody help me. Yeah, red sky in the morning is sailor's warning. Red sky at night, no. Do I have it backwards? Okay. So we're not divided on that. Okay. Red sky in the morning is a sailor's warning. Red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Just a, just a mild applause for that, please, on, on this kind of thing. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I needed a little bit of help, and, um, but I do worse at Jeopardy. But, but so we have, all of us have these sayings about how we figure the weather out ahead of time, even before we have satellites and all of this kind of thing, they had that too. So uh, it, it, Jesus then declares to the multitude, hypocrites, actors, because you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you not, do not discern this time talking about uh, spiritually? So he's saying to them, you, have, you give great attention to looking at, at the sky in order to determine what the weather is going to be. And if you gave even that much attention uh, to my claims to be Messiah and the Son of God and the life that I've lived and the miracles, people being raised from the dead, the cleansing of the lepers, the teaching, and so forth, if you had given even that kind of attention to what it is that I, uh, uh, who I am and, and what I have done, you would have come to the conclusion that I am the Son of God. And I uh, am the Savior of the world. And so uh, he's confronting them with the fact that their unbelief concerning him was not because they d d uh, lacked evidence, but because they were not as honest with the evidence uh, spiritually concerning who he was. They were more honest with the weather than they were with the far more important issue in their life, and that is, what do we make of this man's life and of his teaching? 
And any honest person would have uh, come to the conclusion that he is the promised Messiah and become his disciple. And he said, yes, and why? Even of yourselves you do not judge uh, what is right. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, you're going to go before a court of law, make every effort along the way uh, to settle with him, lest he drag you uh, to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until uh, you have paid the very last uh, mite. And so Jesus is telling them, listen, uh, get right with God so you don't have to face Him uh, as your judge. Every human being, uh, recently here, maybe it was this morning, <clears throat> one of the worship songs, uh, talk, talking about the fact that uh, everyone is going to bow before Jesus one day. Every knee, every single human being in human history is going to kneel before Jesus Christ one day. And they are going to confess Him to be Lord, that He is the promised Messiah. But for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ prior to dying, that will be a confession that will be great joy. For others, it will be a confession that will be their own, own condemnation. And so everyone is going to stand before Jesus Christ one day as either he will either be our judge or he will be our savior. There's nothing in between that. And Jesus is telling the crowd, you never want to stand before me or the Father with us as your judge for having rejected the Son of God for salvation because from that uh, there is no deliverance. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last might. And so he's calling on them uh, to uh, put their faith uh, in, uh, in him and to do it immediately. In chapter 13, we're given a little context for the conversation that occurs next. There was present at that season some who then told Jesus about the Galileans. Those were uh, Jews from the north, the Galilee regions, whose blood pilot had mingled with their sacrifices. So apparently an event had occurred um, that was known. It was probably in the Jerusalem Bee. And, uh, but uh, known to the immediate population, but nothing in the Bible, there's a record of it or a historical record of this particular event where apparently Jews came from the north, the Galilee region. They came down into Jerusalem in order to offer their sacrifices uh, at the temple, and then something happened in which Pilate then ordered uh, the Roman soldiers to then slay these Galilean Jews uh, while they were offering their sacrifices for their blood to then be mingled with their sacrifices. So uh, the fact that you would slay someone uh, in the midst of offering a sacrifice uh, shows us how absolutely brutal and, uh, and atrocious the act by Pilate was. One of the things about Pilate is Pilate was, because of event, instances like this in his reign as a representative of Rome, he was always in hot water with Rome. He was a, a very brutal man, a very violent man uh, when it served his purposes. And that's why on the morning when he took and would not uh, declare Jesus to be free and, 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 and set him uh, free, to be innocent and to set him free, uh, one of the things that was roaming around in his mind is he had already done one too many of these things. 
and had been reported to Rome. And when he looks at kind of the riot that is forming on the part of the religious Jews related to Jesus, he's thinking to himself, I can't mess this up and uh, have another bloodbath, otherwise Rome is going to take me uh, out from the position that I'm in. Interestingly enough, he was relieved of his duty uh, sometime after he had uh, dealt so treacherously uh, with Jesus. But this was the dynamic of, of the man. And so <clears throat> the, uh, they spoke uh, this uh, to Jesus about the Galileans, and they were posing a question to Jesus, at least Jesus understood it uh, to be a question, and, uh, and the, the question is, why in the world did this happen to uh, these uh, Galileans? And they're asking whether uh, these Galileans who had been slain, whether, whether they were worse sinners than other sinners by virtue of, of how tragic their, uh, their death was. And that was a common view among uh, the Jews at that time. We certainly see it in the book of Job when all of these terrible things are happening to Job and all of Job's friends are coming to the same conclusion. It must mean that you are a hypocrite, that you present yourself as a good and righteous man outwardly, but uh, behind closed doors you must be a notorious uh, kind of sinner. And, and it isn't like it was limited to the Jews 2,000 years ago. Uh, all of uh, humankind and just the superstition of our lives, uh, we uh, will oftentimes go to this uh, very same uh, place. When something terrible happens to another person, uh, you wonder, boy, what were, what were they doing secretly? Or what was wrong with them that this kind of a tragedy would happen uh, in their life? Or sometimes something, a tragedy will happen in our lives and then uh, people will wonder that about us or we will wonder it about ourselves uh, related to things. God must be judging me. God must be uh, angry uh, uh, with me. I remember when I was a new Christian, some of you who were Christians at that time, you'll remember it, but there was a Christian music uh, artist by the name of Keith Green. And uh, Keith Green was very, very popular at that point in time. And, uh, uh, um, and, and then he died in a plane uh, crash. I believe it was a plane crash. And, and so he died, right, at kind of the peak of his uh, effectiveness for God. And a pretty outspoken guy and uh, uh, pretty black and white and pretty clear and all. Uh, wasn't everybody's cup of tea, but there he was serving the Lord and, and, and a lot of people were listening to him. And I remember being a new Christian hearing uh, older Christians who were around me, they were saying, yes, uh, God took him out before he went off the deep end. And of course, that never sat right with me because there was no proof for that at all. And, uh, but that's the tendency for even spiritual people to, to come and to judge tragedies in, in, uh, in that kind of way. And we have to be careful about coming to those kind of judgments. Jesus responds to the implied question. And he answered and he said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than uh, other Galileans because they suffered such things? Uh, yeah. That's the question we're asking. So Jesus has got a perfect grasp of you, you ever have somebody then you say it, it takes you 20 minutes to say something and then they say, uh, are you saying that? Yeah. And they say it in five seconds. That's it, uh, the ability to distill it. And then Jesus answers in verse three, 
I tell you, no. So we know from the lips of Jesus that we're never to conclude about other people or ourselves the spirituality or lack of spirituality in another person's life based upon tragedies that come into their life. He said, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise uh, uh, perish. Well, that's quite a segue. That's a strong <laughs> shift on things. He says, I answered the question for you. No, but then uh, let's not make this about those Galileans. Let's make it about you. And let me tell you about a tragedy that is many times worse than the tragedy that befell the Galileans at the hand of, of Pilate. Unless you repent uh, and turn away from your sin, and the idea is to believe in him as Messiah, you will likewise uh, uh, perish. And so these Galileans, they hadn't been sing, uh, singled out uh, by uh, uh, God for uh, this kind of judgment. The fact of the matter is, this is a fallen world. As a new heaven and a new earth coming one day, this is a fallen world, and bad things happen to everyone. And you can search the Bible from one end to the other. And, and look for the place where God promises us as Christians that we will never have tragedies in our life or that non-Christians will never have tragedies uh, in life and that when we do, it's a failure on some part uh, uh, by, by God. The promise is never there. If we bring that expectation to our Christian life, we're going to be disappointed all of the time. The world is fallen. It's broken. And uh, we are broken and fallen, and bad things even happen to the very best of, uh, of people. And so we have to be careful of that. So uh, Jesus here, when he follows with this warning to repent lest they perish, he kind of makes it a teachable moment. He shifts the subject matter to something that applies uh, more uh, to them. In other words, death is coming to everyone. It can come as quickly as it came for them, as unexpectedly uh, as it came, and we need to be prepared for it. And how does a person prepare for <coughs> death? By uh, repenting, uh, as he said, uh, 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 unless you repent, uh, you will all likewise perish. And talking about the greater tragedy of being separated from God for eternity. And he also spoke a, a parable uh, here of a, a, a certain man. Uh, spoke, or rather, he spoke this parable, and he declared that a certain man uh, had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it, and he found uh, none. So we see the image in our mind. Today, sometimes uh, we, uh, in, in this day, if you have a yard or something, you can plant a fruit tree for the fruit, or you can plant a fruit tree uh, just because it'll look beautiful there. So our, sh our, our uh, shopping markets are full of fresh fruit, and so because of our wealth and plenty, we don't really have to plant trees in order to get figs or in order to get oranges or whatever. We can just go to the store. Now, some of you do, but we don't have to do it. In that day, when you planted a fig tree or you planted any kind of fruit tree, it, that needed to be productive because you were going to eat all of those figs. So it wasn't just like a big deal. I've got, a, for instance, I've got an orange tree in my backyard. 
And um, I, 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 I try to eat some of them every year, but there's billions of them. <laughs> this orange tree is, it probably got planted when the house got built, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1965 or whatever. So there's all kinds, and, and uh, Karen got me to buy one of those extension things where you pull them off, and I, so I bought it, and uh, it's right there in my garage, because if I'm not picking the ones that are four feet off the ground, I'm not going to pick the ones that are 30 feet in the air, and, uh, because the oranges are better candidly at the store than this orange tree. Because we don't fertilize it, we don't water it, we live in California, it would cost us more in water to have a decent orange out of that tree. This is my justification. I've worked all of it out in my mind while I had that long stick out there trying to bring the oranges in. Now it's cheaper just to buy them, but a different time and then trees needed to be uh, fruitful and they needed to be productive. I love you, honey. It's a great idea. It's uh, really, I'm the... It's the fault is all on me. And so he, he said to the keeper of, of, of his vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Now, a fig tree all the way through the Bible is a symbol of the nation of Israel. And the three years speak of his three years of public ministry where he's been ministering, miracles, all of these things, and there is still no faith by and large. Uh, and, uh, and still the nation as a whole is marked by unbelief toward him. There is no spiritual fruit. And so the master says, cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And, and then the, the caretaker, the keeper of the vineyard, he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Give me one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, uh, well, uh, but if it does not, uh, after that, you can uh, cut it down. And so, uh, this uh, parable here, speaking of the nation uh, of Israel, uh, God was going to, uh, Jesus was going to give them even more time to repent beyond his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. In fact, he was going to give them all the way till 70 AD when Jerusalem uh, and the land of Israel itself was utterly devastated by an invasion by Rome uh, to put down a, a revolt that occurred there. And the temple was completely uh, destroyed. And so uh, the point of the parable here is, is teaches that this space to repent toward God, as, G as Jesus is speaking to the crowd, it, it, it is not... It is not always going to be there. The space to repent is a space. And, uh, and you're not going to be able to go on year after year after year of rejecting me as the Messiah and without consequences. And sure enough, uh, the hammer fell uh, on Jerusalem and on the Jewish people in, in that uh, 70 a, uh, A.D. And then Jesus, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues, and, he, and on the Sabbath, and this is the last time in the biblical record, um, uh, this is the last time Jesus is now get, drawing very close uh, to uh, dying upon the cross. He's a very short period of time away from that. It's the last record that we have in the Gospels of him visiting a synagogue on the Sabbath day or on any day. 
And so he, he's teaching in one of the synagogues, and it's on the Sabbath day, which is the complication, uh, the Saturday. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity uh, 18 years and was bent over and could in no wise raise herself up. So she, here she is, in, she's in, in the synagogue, <clears throat> and she's got this disease where she is bent over and can't raise up. The word that Luke uses, and Luke is a physician as he writes this gospel, uh, that he uses for um, uh, this woman being bent over is the same Greek word that was used for Jesus uh, in one of the other Gospels that when that woman caught in, in John chapter 8, I think when the woman was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus there by the Jewish religious leaders, and you remember that Jesus said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, and then he bent over and he wrote in the dirt. So he's He's gone all the way down like this, and he's, and he's riding in the dirt. This is her condition. I mean, imagine. This is her condition for uh, 18 years. And so there she is uh, in that synagogue, and when Jesus saw her, and he always spots need, he called her to him, he knew what he was going to do, wasn't going to do it in secret. He was going to make this a lesson for the whole synagogue. He said to her, woman, and I don't know the last time anybody called her woman. Uh, people, when they kind of have these grotesque diseases and all, people stop thinking about them as human beings. They now just think about them in terms of their disease or their affliction or their deformity. But he says, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Oh, my! I mean, can you imagine, number one, just being in the synagogue and seeing that? And, she, and, and if, listen, when, if you lived in a town, the odds are you, you never left that town very often, unless you were in the trades of some kind. And so a lot of these people had seen her like this, and, and they had only seen her like this for 18 uh, years. And then now she stands up straight, and of course the, the reaction is going to be that she began to glorify God. Oh boy, you would think everybody would be so happy uh, with, with what had occurred here. Uh, but the, the first word of verse 14 is the word but. Not everybody is happy. The ruler of the synagogue, he answered with indignation. I mean, he's very upset uh, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And so he said to the crowd, you notice he won't speak to Jesus. A little passive aggressive, I'd say. And, uh, and so he doesn't rebuke Jesus here, but he's going to go after the crowd. Here's what he says. There are six days on which a man ought to work and therefore uh, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Listen, if you want to get healed, you could come down any of the Sunday through Friday and get healed. The only thing we ask of you is you don't come and get healed here on a Saturday. She hadn't been healed on any day for 18 years. It's not like this kind of thing was happening at the hands of anyone else but Jesus. And, and, it, and it's just, it's all a, a feigned indignation as Jesus is going to bring out here in, in, uh, in, in just a moment. And so the Lord answered and said to him, 
hypocrite. Your indignation is, is absolutely uh, phony. Now, when, when, when the man said, uh, there, are, there are six days on which men ought to work, he considered the healing of this woman to be work. And that was the interpretation of the religious Jews. It was not what the law of Moses said. And the Jews believed that if somebody got cut on the Sabbath day, that you could uh, stop the bleeding, but you couldn't stitch it up. If somebody broke their arm or a bone on the Sabbath day, you could uh, stabilize the arm, but you couldn't reset it. That constituted work by their man-made definitions on the Sabbath day. So you could help people, but you couldn't heal them or advance their healing. So he viewed it as work. Problem is, this required no effort by God. God did it, but it, it, it is hardly work for him uh, to do anything. And so Jesus called him uh, a hypocrite. This is just a big self-righteous uh, show. And, and he gives the evidence for it. He says, does not each one of you, speaking of the other Jewish religious leaders as well uh, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, don't you loose your ox or donkey uh, from the stall and lead it away to water? Don't you do work on the Sabbath day so your animals don't die every Saturday? Well, of course they did it. And, uh, and so Jesus said, so ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it. And when he says, think of it, it's like, put yourself in her shoes. Forget your religious hi-hat and all of your training and all of your nonsense. Put yourself in her shoes. Think of it. She has lived this way for 18 years, and you couldn't bring yourself to glorify God with her? over what God did for her and, and uh, bound for 18 years be loosed from uh, this bond on the, the Sabbath uh, day. And so he, he confronts, uh, confronts Jesus, uh, confronts the man uh, with the hypocrisy uh, of all of this and basically saying, listen, you guys are, you found a way to manipulate the law of Moses that would allow you to water your livestock on the Sabbath day, uh, but you couldn't find it uh, inside of you to interpret the law of Moses to allow God himself to heal someone on the Sabbath day. So think about what we're dealing with here. And Jesus confronts them uh, with it. And when he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. Of course, what could you say to that? And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done uh, by him. And then Jesus uh, told a parable uh, of uh, the mustard seed and a parable of the leaven. And then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And uh, to what shall I compare it? And, and uh, the a parable comes from uh, two Greek words, para, which means alongside, balo, which means to throw. So Jesus takes something from the physical realm that everybody understands, and he throws it alongside a spiritual truth to help us understand the spiritual truth. 
And so he gives the, uh, the parable, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? Let me give you some uh, insight here into uh, the kingdom of God. It is like a mustard seed which a man took, put it in his garden, you can all see it in our minds, and it grew and it became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in uh, its branches. And so, uh, remember, uh, at this time, Jesus, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he is still very, very popular. Big crowds are following him uh, in, in all of this. And Jesus is going to declare to the disciples here that they shouldn't assume that every person in the crowd is a sincere follower uh, of Jesus. Uh, of, of him. And we shouldn't assume the same thing about any gathering concerning uh, Jesus even uh, to this day. We get excited uh, about, you know, large numbers of people in a meeting and uh, gathering around Jesus under, uh, uh, as he's kind of uh, set forth as, as the attraction. And, uh, but Jesus is saying not everything is as it, it, it seems uh, to be. And so uh, uh, here is this rejoicing at Jesus. Jesus is teaching the multitude and all, and, and so he declares about this mustard seed. The parable, the description of the mustard seed being the least of all of the herb seeds, Matthew brings that out, sown into the field, and uh, when the seed grows, it becomes this giant plant in, in terms of its size, so big that the birds of the air can come and nest uh, in it. Now, mustard plants are more of a bush rather than a tree, and they really grow in, into trees. And so, uh, this uh, growth of this mustard seed uh, uh, tree or bush would represent phenomenal or unnatural growth. Now, the, the common interpretation of this is that Jesus is communicating that the kingdom of God in human history is going to begin very, very uh, small like a mustard seed and that it's going to experience great growth and it's going to win the whole world and, uh, and close to the end of the age there's going to be this great wave of success and glory. And the reason that that common interpretation uh, uh, can't be right is that it is true that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God would begin small and it would achieve a great size, great influence and, and success, but he's also teaching that that would not be accomplished through uh, purity or holiness or faithfulness to God's Word, but it would uh, occur through compromise. In the parable of the soils in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, as we talked about the four soils, the man went forth and he cast the seed and there was uh, the soil that fell on the wayside, uh, the hard ground. There was the soil that fell upon the shallow ground. There was the soil that fell upon in the thorns and the thistles and weeds and then the soil that fell upon uh, good soil and, and it brought forth 30, 60, and 100 fold. And as Jesus moved from that parable, uh, the first one that he told moved on to speak other parables, he spoke to the disciples and he said to them, if you don't understand uh, the parable of the soils, then how can you understand any of the other parables? And the point is, is there is a, uh, a rule of Bible interpretation known as expositional constancy concerning the parables. In other words, what each of these different uh, figures within the parable of the soil or, or soils or the parable of the sower, 
what those things represent in that parable, they then represent in all, the same thing in all of the parables. Because parables, I'm convinced that Jesus uh, gave them that revelation because parables especially are in need of some kind of protection from being interpreted into all kinds of crazy ideas that people might have of them and to twist them and make them say whatever we want them to say. So he says, no, there's, there's guidelines here on these parables. And so in that parable, the birds of the air represented Satan coming and pulling the gospel or the seeds out of the hard hearts of people that weren't willing to receive it. And so the birds have to re represent evil within this parable as Jesus uh, in, uh, in, instructed. And so what you have here are the birds of the air, uh, that which is of the devil, now finding itself a home within what identifies itself uh, as uh, the, the kingdom of God. And Jesus speaks to the disciples, speaks to us as well, so that when it happens, uh, we aren't discouraged in our service to the Lord uh, over the fact that so many crazy things identify with Christianity that have nothing to do with Christianity. They have found a home within Christianity, but they have nothing to do with what Jesus is about or the God of the Bible uh, is about. So that's what the birds represent, uh, Jehovah Witnessism, uh, Mormonism, um, uh, significant aspects of Roman Catholicism, uh, significant blocks of Protestantism are in this category. Liberal uh, Protestantism that don't believe in the virgin birth, do not believe in the deity of Christ, uh, uh, do not uh, believe in Jesus' miracles or write down uh, the line, these, these different things that he wasn't born of a virgin. And you've got all of this crazy kind of stuff. All you have to do is watch Christian television. And you've got, I don't know what it would be, 60-40, 70-30, 50-50, I don't know, I'm no expert on it. But I see some pretty crazy stuff on Christian television. I see a lot of good things. God bless Charles Stanley and uh, people like him that are on there teaching the Word of God that, the way that they do. But God is represented in all kinds of nutty ways on things. I look at it sometimes, and I, believe me, it's like this. Click, 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 click. Ah, there's a game. And uh, uh, because it, 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 it doesn't so much frustrate me, though it does do that, but it disheartens me. It disheartens me. And I stop and I put myself as a pastor, as a Christian, in the United States of America today, in the world today, and what all of these different voices that claim to speak for God and, and many of which do not, the confusion that it creates for people ever coming to know the truth about God and the God of the Bible, when so many people are saying so many different things. I mean, if there wasn't a Holy Spirit that is greater than all of these things to open people's hearts up to the truth, we'd be absolutely doomed. But it is disheartening. You look at it and you say, well, okay, we've got Calvary Chapel Modesto and we're trying to do what God calls us to do here. And then there's this church in town and that church in town and all different. So there's a lot of good things happening all over the place. But this, this other thing is disheartening when, when we see it. Because we say, how in the world are people going to figure out where to find the truth on this? 
And I think Jesus knew that that would be the case. That would be the condition. There will be a lot of things claiming to represent Christ in Christianity that are the birds of the air. They are things that the devil has attached to it in order to confuse people uh, uh, about uh, the truth. And here you have growth uh, by virtue of compromise and all kinds of, uh, of different things. And so uh, Satan, he opposes the genuine work of the Lord in the world uh, by uh, introducing uh, his influences, his false doctrine, and his confusion. The same thing carries forth in the second, and we'll stop with this tonight. And uh, Jesus gave him a second parable, and he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom uh, of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And so the idea, the common interpretation is, uh, here you've got this... Uh, 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 meal, measures of meal for bread, a little bit of leaven is put in it. That leaven, of course, leaven introduced into dough, it will leaven the, enti uh, uh, the entire uh, lump. And so the leaven represents the gospel, and the gospel is going to go into all of the world and fill the entire uh, entire world. The problem with that interpretation is all the way through the Bible, leaven represents evil. It represents uh, uh, sin, and, uh, uh, and, and so uh, uh, because the meal is made up of the wheat, which represents the Word of God, the Word of God is the wheat in the, in the parable uh, of, of the soils, and this appears to represent the corruption of the Word of God here with false doctrine. And the amount of false doctrine that professes to be Christian and is spoken in the name of the Lord but is not Christian at all is absolutely uh, staggering uh, today. I mean, it, it has gotten to the place, I don't know, Steve, I see him at the back door, any of us in the room, you just look at it and it's like, it's just overwhelming. I mean, you, what it would take to correct all of it that is... Uh, the false things that are taught, uh, uh, false doctrine concerning Christ, it's so prevalent you can't even keep up with it, uh, let alone to uh, try and, uh, you know, go after it. And uh, the, the idea of all kinds of sins being okay and, and, uh, and that, no, Jesus is really only like this. He doesn't have a stern side to him or, or any of this. But all this false teaching that when the Lord returns, that, that, the, that this, this which uh, claims to represent Christ in the world is going to be filled with uh, false doctrine as well. And again, it is to be uh, forewarned and thus forearmed so that we realize that not everyone who claims to speak for Christ and not everyone who claims to be representing uh, the God of the Bible is actually doing so. And the sheer amount of false doctrine that is being taught today, again, it can be very discouraging to those that are attempting uh, to do so because you look at it and you say, wow, this is like a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of crowds that this other kind of stuff uh, gets in terms of people. But uh, Paul said, there's going to be the last days, itching ears. People are going to want to have their ears rubbed. They're going to want to go where they hear what they want to hear, and they will heap these kind of teachers up uh, to 
themselves. And so, uh, this uh, 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 teaching here of, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of how to view the body of Christ, what professes to be Christianity, and to view it with some discernment, and to realize that no matter how much of this we see, Again, we can't go through the whole church or the body of Christ. It's not our job. We don't have the wisdom, the power. We don't have the calling to try and separate the tares from the wheat. We can't do that. We'll just do more damage. This is something that has to be left to the Holy Spirit. But the important thing is, is that this kind of thing does not discourage us from doing the big or the little thing that God has called us to do and say, what difference does it make? And the big mess of the mustard tree and the leaven in the lump. And that's the danger that Jesus is trying to head off here so that we're not discouraged by what we see all around us. And all of which is just another mark of the fact that the Lord's return is very, very near. Well, we'll stop there tonight and uh, let's stand and we'll close in prayer and close in a worship song. If you're here tonight and you are not yet a Christian,